ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Eric Anderson, and on today's episode, we'll listen to the second half of my conversation with Dr. William Dembski. Previously, Dembski shared information about his recent work in education and the critical principle of the conservation of information, which refutes the Darwinist hope that evolution can provide a free lunch. We now pick up the conversation discussing the recent allegations of cheating that rocked the professional chess community and how Dembski's work on the design inference relates to this recent news. Well, good. Well, let's let's turn to chess for a minute. Right. So I, I follow chess pretty closely. I know you used to play, you used to play a little bit as well, but yeah. I try to follow professional chess relatively closely. So I was actually watching the Sinkfield Cup and the game in particular between world champion Carlson and, and Hans yeah. Niemann at the time. So I saw some of the reactions to that. And for people, maybe some of our listeners aren't aware Chess is a big deal now. I mean, there's enough money in it that top players can support themselves playing chess. There's lots of other people involved in coaching and commentary and streaming and analyzing and working for companies. Uh, One of the largest is chess.com. And I understand they have something like 100 million subscribers and around 10 million games of chess that get played every single day on their platform. So it's a big industry. There's a lot of money involved and a lot of prestige, of course, for the top players. And so when we have a situation where there's an accusation or a inference of cheating uh, that somebody might want to draw. It's, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And of course, with everything at stake, people want to have some assurance that the games are played fairly. And so they're using certain tools to try to help ensure that, that fairness is there and that cheaters get caught. Right. So there were two major incidents, uh, just to recap for our listeners. Um, on September 4th, 2022, this was part of the Sinkfield Cup. This was day three of the event. This is an in-person over-the-board event as opposed to an online. So this is in-person. And there were 10 players as part of the Grand Chess Tour, which was played over five events in four different countries between May and September 2022. And there was a total prize fund set aside of $1.4 million. So this is kind of a big deal, this portion of the, of the tour, I think, with $350,000 prize fund. And so this was the first classical game between Carlson and Neiman. They've played many times in Rapid and Blitz, but this was the first full-length classical game. And Neiman won with the black pieces, which was a big deal because Carlson had something like a 53-game non-losing streak, and uh, essentially nobody had beaten him with the black pieces for, I think it was five years or something. So the next day, Carlson withdrew from the Sinkfield Cup uh, without a lot of explanation, but just said he was withdrawing and had some concerns. And then the next day, chess.com disinvited Neiman to the chess.com global championship, which was an online event, which was scheduled to start the next week. And that had a $1 million prize associated with that. It's, it doesn't all go to one individual. It gets distributed among the, the top players. But again, a pretty significant event. And so then later, they issued a 72-page report that said Hans has likely cheated in more than 100 games between 2015 and 2020. They specifically declined to speculate on whether the over-the-board game in St. Louis with Carlson involved cheating. In fact, they said there's no direct evidence that he cheated in that game. But primarily, they didn't make a statement, first of all, because they have no jurisdiction in the matter. It's a matter for FIDE, which is the World Chess Organization. But also because they felt there was a lot less evidence in that particular game than in the online games. So then the last thing that happened was uh, just a few days ago, October 20th, Neiman sued Magnus Carlson, his company Play Magnus, Chess.com, Danny Ranch, and Hikaru Nakamura in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri for $100 million. And there's a 44-page complaint, if anybody wants to read that, to help you get to sleep tonight. So 
This is the background of this blow up in the chess world now and with a lot of money and prestige at stake and some efforts to find out whether or not there was cheating involved in either the over the board game in St. Louis or previously in some of the online games at chess.com. So, so Bill, how is the design inference or at least some of the same kinds of analyses that you laid out in the design inference, how is it used in a case like this? Yeah, or how would it would it be used? I think. Yeah, or, or how could it how could it be used? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is you want to rule out a smoking gun, right? I mean, if if they could have caught somebody sending signals mm-hmm. to Neiman, uh, you know, f- uh, during the game with with Magnus Carlsen, you know, or or some some clear indication. I mean, I remember, for instance, uh, there's a magician. James Randi, you know, he, right. he discovered how this one uh, evangelist healer uh, was was cheating by basically seeing that, oh, he's got an earpiece and then actually zooming in on what was being said in the earpiece, you know. So then, you know, right, if you yeah. can catch somebody red-handed, that would be great. But, you know, sure. that that doesn't seem to be happening here. I mean, if, if that were the case, you know, I don't think we'd be talking – Hundred million dollar right. lawsuits. So, so and this is the case with most with design inferences. There's there's circumstantial arguments. You're you're looking. You don't have the smoking gun. So then, what do you do? And you need some sort of pattern. And uh, these are the types of patterns that are salient, independently given. Uh, mathematically, we they they need to be patterns that have short description length. So they're easily described. You know, so it could be a, you know, a certain type of cheating pattern or whatever. But then you also need a probability and the probability needs to be small. Now, what is small? Uh, in social science literature, you know, a small probability might be 0.05, you know, 5% of the time. Uh, if, uh, if a result is that extreme or more, then, uh, you reject the, the chance hypothesis. But, uh, for design inferences, it seems you need much, much smaller. I mean, you know, so if you're going to look at, for instance, origin of life, you know, it's not enough just to say, well, it would be highly improbable for life to arise on planet Earth. You know, there have been maybe 10 to the 40 different organisms that have existed on planet Earth. But if you consider all the other planets that there might be, how big the universe mm-hmm. is, it seems that you've got a whole lot more opportunities for life to arise. So, so you'd need to consider improbabilities at the scale of the universe. And in that case, my, my go-to universal probability bound has been 10 to the minus 150. And I think that's, that has held up well. After I published that, Seth Lloyd, quantum computational theorist at MIT, he put the computational capacity of the universe at about 10 to the 120. Mm-hmm. And which is, you know, so basically, so that's how many computational steps. Well, that's how many attempts you can make, as it were, probabilistically. And so the reciprocal of that ends up giving you also a, a legitimate universal probability bound. Yeah. So, so, that, so Bill, for, for, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just for I know some oh. people will be very familiar with the universal probability bound, but just maybe for folks who are new, maybe just describe what that is based on your 10 to minus 150th. What what are you looking yeah. at to come up with that number? Well, yeah, it, it, there, there are different ways of approaching it. Basically, you know, I, these days I tend to go with more of a computational approach. So if you can think of, for instance, every proton in the universe acting as a computer where it operates at a speed of what light takes to cross the diameter of a proton, 
you know, and then you don't even, you, you may even say, well, let's, let's not even just look at protons. They're about uh, 10 to the 80 protons, but let's go to, let's, let's even look at elementary particles. If we right. imagine every elementary particle as a, as a high speed computer operating, you know, I think it's about 10 to the minus 23 seconds to cross the diameter of a proton. Uh, and then you've got billions of years. So when you just put that all together, you know, you got billions of years operating at that sort of computational speed with that many computers running. Those are the number of events you can consider. And uh, implicit with these probability bounds is always how many opportunities do you have to get a certain event? You know, if I flip a coin and I get 10 heads in a row, well, if I flip for about an hour, I could, you know, with reasonable probability get 10 heads in a row. What about 100 heads in a row? Well, if every human being throughout the course of history flipped and did nothing but toss coins, they would should not expect to see 100 heads in a row. You know, so you extend that sort of rationale to the level of the whole universe and that's where you get a probability universal probability bound of 10 to the minus 150. The thing is in practice you you don't have to go that small. I mean, just think of it for sure. instance, uh, you know, a Visa card, you know, you've got 16 numbers there, but the first number is redundant because for Visa, it's always the first number is a four. For MasterCard, it's a five. So you got 15 possible numbers. So that's 10 to the 15 possibilities. But then you also have the expiration date. Okay. That adds another factor of 10 or 100. And then you've got the CVV number. Okay. That adds another 10 to the three, you know, another thousand possibilities. So with Visa cards, you've got about 10 to the 20 possibilities. And with 300 million users worldwide, you know, it's highly unlikely that you're just by random guessing, you're going to find even one, the credentials for one of those Visa numbers. And in fact, mm -hmm. if uh, if a Visa card is compromised, it's usually because of fraud. You know, yeah. it's not because somebody just randomly guessed it. But you know, the 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 probability bound implicit with a Visa card is going to be on the order of something like ten to the minus twenty, and that's enough. You know, yeah, I mean, we trust it. I mean, it, for for practical purposes in handling our funds, it's enough that we can trust it. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, you know, with something like. How, uh, you know, I'm thinking this, this chess example, you know, what would be an improbability that would be very convincing? I'd, I'd say probably one in a trillion, you know, would, would be way good enough or, you know, maybe one in 10 mm -hmm. to the 18. I think that's, that sort of probability is on the order of, you know, one in 10 to the 18 would be, you know, finding one grain of sand among all the sand on the beaches in the world, you know, that's, uh, right. to get, you know, just the right, sand grain, you know, to pick that at random, that would be highly improbable. So if, uh, you know, if it was that improbable that Neiman could have defeated Carlson in that classical face-to-face -face match, uh, that would be, that would be significant, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but the thing is, you know, I think the, the problem in this case is that we don't have uh, really reliable probabilistic information, you know, and the thing is, you know, players also, it's not like even, you know, we might say, well, probabilities that are relevant, you know, if you have two players of different strength, you know, there's going to be, if one is much stronger than the other, then it should be much more probable that the stronger will defeat uh, the weaker. You know, right. I put a number on that. 
but the thing is, uh, you know, it's, it's not clear to me that that's ever going to be on the order of these sorts of, you know, one in a trillion, one in quadrillion, one in a quintillion. Uh, because, you know, I mean, people make blunders. You know, you have, uh, uh, you know, I, I did have my chess phase and I remember uh, having a, a book on the 1909 St. Petersburg chess tournament, you know, which Emmanuel Lasker and Akiba Rubenstein, mm-hmm. they tied. Rubenstein beat Lasker and I think in one game and, uh, and drew in the other. So, uh, you know, there's a, a chess player named Dusschot Mirsky who played in that tournament. He's one of the weaker players. He finished toward the bottom, and yet he's the only player who beat both Lasker and Akiba Rubenstein. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you yeah. make of that? That that's his claim to fame. That in that tournament, he, yeah, he lost he, the tournament, but he, I beat he, these two guys. <laughs> he beat the two strongest players in the world at that time. You know, so how you know? And th- this was a pre-tech world, so you, know, you can't sure, say that it was sure. that there was cheating. You know, so. Uh, so that's, I think, yeah. that, that's one of the things, complicating factors. And then also player strength is not uh, determined once and for all. I mean, Neiman is a young guy, uh, so, you know, he could be getting stronger. You know? sure. So that's, you know, and then I think there are also subjective elements uh, when you have one player against another. I mean, so Magnus Carlsen is playing him in some blitz uh, chess on a beach, uh, you know, and then maybe he gets a feel for how strong he thinks he would be over a board. And then suddenly he's surprised and it just doesn't feel right, you know. But, you know, mm-hmm. it not feeling right is falls short of a design inference, you know. So that's yeah. – uh, uh, so, I mean, you know, this is one of the, the things with design inferences. I mean, it requires that you have the right data and evidence. You need to be able to – nail down some probabilities. There needs to be a specification that's, you know, that's, that's an objectively given pattern to which, which is matched and then which, uh, whose match on a chance hypothesis, uh, should be highly improbable. So these pieces need to be in place and just how they, how they fall into place here is unclear. I mean, it, there, it's, yeah. I think it's implicit. You know, I think, you know, Magnus Carlson, I'm sure he has a sense of, I'm this strong. This guy is that strong. There's no way he should have beaten me, you know. But, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, then again, I mean, I, I looked at at least the key place in the game. I mean, it seemed that Carlson blundered and, you know, or made a mistake at, at the very least. It was, was not – he did not play the strongest move at that point, and it seemed that – Yeah, and, and we and we want to make clear here that, you know, we're not – we're not suggesting that Neiman cheated. Like you yeah. say, we don't have enough information yeah. at this point to Absolutely. make that inference. But it's it's interesting to see the logic of it, you know, just what and what uh-huh. would it take to nail this down? Yeah. So let me, so let's dive into that a little bit. So, so since I happened to wade through the entire chess.com report, let me, let me list some factors for you, Bill, that <laughs> they credits, indicated. Yeah. yeah. Factors that they list as ways that they try to assess cheating. Now, again, chess.com, just to be clear, is the online organization that disinvited Neiman the following day to their big million dollar event. The over-the-board event at the Sinkfield Cup in St. Louis is administered by FIDE, which is a separate organization. So these are two different things. But the big report we got is from Chess.com. There's been there's been really nothing from the other side yet. So here's what they list Bill as the factors, uh, and there's nine of them. They say we compare the moves made by the individual in question. Right? We compare the moves made to the engine recommended moves. 
We remove some of the opening moves and some end game moves. Uh, the reason for that will be clear to you, but just for our listeners, there's some sort of static moves or common moves that are made. So those don't really play into whether or not there's an analysis of cheating here. We focus on key and critical moves. Number four, we discuss with a panel of trained analysts and strong players. So there's a little bit of that sort of subjectivity coming into it that you mentioned. We compare the player's past performance and known strength profile. We compare a player's performance to the performance of comparable peers. We look at the statistical significance of the results. Maybe that's the big one there that you focused on. We look if there are behavioral factors at play. For example, when you're playing online. Um, they can tell and monitor whether you switch to another screen or whether you're going back and forth between different views. There's some screen capture technology, things like that. And then lastly, we review the time of usage based on the moves on the board. So if it's a relatively obvious, easy move, you should be able to make it quickly. If you're a grandmaster, if it's an incredibly difficult move and you make it in five seconds, that would raise some suspicions when you should have taken, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to think about it. So those are the factors that they list in their report. Uh, which of those kind of jump out at you as being relevant to the to the work that you've been doing? Well, I mean, certainly the, the most relevant for the design inference is, you know, statistical significance, you know, but uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's a million dollar or hundred million dollar question, right? I mean, how do you assess that, uh, the statistics there? And it's not clear that, that you can do it. And it all, I mean, all the points seem broadly speaking relevant, you know, but the devil's in the details. How do you, you know, take sorts of broad considerations and then, uh, you know, take this down to where, you know, the nitty meets the gritty. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, even for instance, I mean, just going through it, you know, because I thank you for sharing that list. I'm looking at it myself right now. So comparing the moves made to engine recommended moves. Well, there's, I guess there's a question, you know, which engine, you know, uh, because uh, there presumably are various chess playing programs. I mean, you know, there's, uh, and then you can even yeah. uh, run them at different speeds. Uh, you know, there's there, there are variations, it seems, there. So, you know, it's not as though there's this platonic heaven of the best moves that we've accessed. And then we can say, okay, if you're, if you're matching those moves, then, you know, it's, it's likely that you have, You've cheated. So I think even with engine recommended moves, you know, there, there's I don't see a smoking gun there. You know, focusing on key and critical moves, you know, even that ends up, it seems to me, being a bit subjective because you know I remember, for instance, uh, you know, there there were uh, I think in the twenties or thirties, you know, it was Rudolf Spielmann and Alexander Alekhine were were big names. Alekhine was certainly the stronger player. Sure. And Spielman, I mean, he remarked at, at one point, you know, if I can get into those situations, you know, where where Alekhine plays these combinations, these brilliant combinations that make him so famous, uh, you know, I could do that too. But it's getting into those situations, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's the thing, you know. So how do you you know, do the, how do you play the position play that you can get to these places where you can have these fruitful uh, combinations that work for you? So, you know, the, the distinction between key critical moves and uh, non-critical moves, that seems to me a little bit art- artificial, you know, it's, uh, you know, so. Yeah, there's certainly some subjectivity there. Yeah, yeah there's certainly some subjectivity there. I think, I think what they're driving at in that spot is that sort of the inverse of that would be forced moves. Yeah. Where you, you know, the most obvious one being if you're if you're in check, but 
there's a number of ways that you can be in a forced move situation. And so what they're saying is the fact that someone plays the best engine move in that case, which is forced move, is not particularly indicative because anybody over 1500 would probably play that and certainly a strong grandmaster. So what they try to do is is strip some of those kinds of moves out and maybe strip some moves out that seem to be, you know, it's sort of a 50-50. Do I move the knight here? Do I move it there? And then they end up, so if you had a game with, say, I don't know, 35, 40 moves in it, which would be typical, uh, and you take out the opening, you take out some of the end game, and you take out the forced moves, and you take out the the 50-50 moves, you know, you might only have eight or ten moves in a game that are really key critical moments where it could affect significantly the outcome at that level of chess. I mean, for those of us who, for, for somebody like me, I, I can blunder at any moment, but, but for a, you know, a super grandmaster at one of these tournaments, uh, there might only be a half a dozen spots in that game that are key critical moments. Yeah. Well, and so yeah. that would, that would reduce. I mean, I think, I think it helps you home in on, doesn't that help you home in on the ones that you want to focus on, but at the same time, it gives you a much lower uh, sample size in any particular game. Well, I mean, and then I think the question is, what inferences are you going to draw from that? I mean, it does seem to me that there's a holistic yeah. aspect to the game, also. I mean, so sure. Uh, well, let me let me read a quote on that, uh, yeah. Bill, because the other, another thing that they said in the report was they said statistics can give a strong indication, but can also be inconclusive in the context of numerous factors such as opponent strength, opening moves, in-game moves, and other confounding factors. Potential foul play, which may initially be tipped off by anomalous performance, often requires extensive analysis and collection of evidence through comparative analytics, factual investigation, and detailed examination of other evidence. And in fact, part of the factual investigation that chess.com goes through is they actually try to get the person to admit that they cheated. You know, which is your back to your smoking gun, right? Yeah. Well, and that's that's the uh, you know, but it seems to me that uh, the safest course always is just to refuse to admit any wrongdoing because at the, at the end of the day, you know, there is no, there is no smoking gun in these examples. Well, you know? yeah, yeah, no, you're right. But the, 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 here's, here's how they handle that bill. They, they have a very practical way of approaching this. What they say is, look, uh, we're closing your account. You can't play in any more online tournaments. You can't earn any more money on our platform. But if you admit to cheating, then we will allow you to uh, come clean, uh, admit your wrongdoing, open a new account. We may put you on probation for a while, but eventually you can come back and, and participate again. So that's that's sort of the carrot that they dangle to. Yeah. <laughs> so like in the law, you know, I mean, doing a you know plea bargain. Yeah. So yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. plea bargain for a lower yeah. sentence. Well, yeah. yeah. So I guess the, that's that's the incentive. You know, you wonder then how many people it's you know admit to fault, you know, who actually haven't, you know, because of this. That's, uh, that's, that's the flip side. Right? Oh yeah. Poten- potential. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's an interesting question too. Right. Let, let me read a couple more quotes. Um, there's this one is from Vichy Anand, who of course was the world champion before Carlson. Right. And he didn't say this in the context of the current situation. He said this back in 2014 in an interview about potential cheating. But this reminded me, you were talking about uh, your universal probability bound. You were talking about statistical information. Here's what he said. One bit per game, talking about bit of information, one bit per game, one yes, no answer about whether a sacrifice is sound could be worth 150 rating points. Is that 
over the course of multiple games? I mean, it seems because you're. Yeah, I think I think I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the context. Uh, yeah. Is what he's saying is look to cheat. And again, we're not accusing anybody here of cheating, yeah. but to cheat, he's saying you don't need to do a lot. It's yeah. not like you have to have an engine behind you telling you every single move at the super grandmaster level. If there's one critical point in the game where I can get a yes or no, that would be the difference in so many games that it would significantly impact my rating. And so that's something that, you know, if you're talking about your universal probability bound, which is one in, you know, 10 to the minus 150th compared with one bit, we're talking about extremely low levels of information that could potentially influence the outcome yeah, but I mean, of the game. You get, it's far, you can get, far lower. You can get to 150, one in 10 to the 150. Uh, that's what? It's about 500 bits of information. So it's uh, yeah. So if, uh, if you can accumulate those bits, uh, you know, in 500 games, you you could potentially get get to that level, or even even sooner, because uh, you know it's. You know, the way he's describing it, it's one bit, it's a yes or no, but it's not necessarily the case that the yes and the no are to two equiprobable outcomes, right? I mean, the yes can be to mm-hmm. a good move, and then there can be 20 other possible moves. So, so even that yeah. yes could be worth five bits for five bits, you know? So, but I mean, it's, it's an interesting point that, that he raises, you know? And, uh, you know, I think that actually raises the question about, you know, are there any psychologists who are doing experiments where, for instance, you you put somebody up at a tournament who's at a certain strength and you say, okay, you have one place, you know, at one point in the game, you can appeal to a... Uh, you make the, the call the to engine. your... Uh, yeah. You can do a call to the engine, you know, aren't there, aren't there yeah. quiz show games, you know, where you can put a call, you know, right. out there, you know, so you do it, right. uh, you know, and then see... How does how does the the rating improve? You know, I mean, you can. That's actually it seems uh, there, there's an empirical test. I mean, it's there's still going to be a bit of a confounding effect potentially because no player is player's ability is just you know permanently etched in stone as as such. Right. I mean, players typically you know they they're going to be getting better up to a certain age i mean just as with athletes and, and uh, you perform differently on different days yeah, depending yeah. on how yeah exactly well, too but uh, but even so you know it's like you know it would be an interesting question how much does your actual strength i mean is can you quantify it in terms of an elo rating if you if you can have have one call to an engine. Mm-hmm. How about two calls? How about three calls? You know, the thing is there, there's also some judgment, you know, when do you make the call? You know, when don't you, you know, you yeah. may, you may make the call for a position where you should be able to figure it out yourself. And then there may be other places where, because you don't appreciate the nuances of the position, you, you blunder ahead as opposed to making the call to the engine. So yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the possibilities here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So while you're with us, I want to dive into something that I think can help us to distinguish a little bit between sort of this messy situation that we're dealing with in chess cheating versus something that I think is a little more straightforward. So I was thinking about how the design inference might work in a few different situations. And I'll I'll just kind of go through this and take a minute and then you can let me know your thoughts on this. So in the one case that we're all familiar with in, you know, design inference in biology or Behe's books or, you know, analyzing things like that. 
is detecting the activity of an intelligent agent in contrast to an unguided, undirected natural process. Okay, so this is mm -hmm. sort of the prototypical design in, in biology that we talk about yeah. in ID. The second scenario would be detecting the activity of an intelligent agent in contrast to another purposeful agent where the one that we're looking at is trying to achieve something different than the baseline. So uh, here's what I mean by that. If you look at something like plagiarism or copyright infringement or patent infringement, we expect the agent in question to have a goal of producing something unique or creative in contrast to another work that was out there. Right. And then the third category I would say is where we're detecting the activity of an intelligent agent in contrast to another intelligent agent where the agent in question is trying to achieve the same result as the baseline. So here's sort of our chess situation where, you know, the player's goal is to quote unquote, learn to play like an engine. And your specific games as a player are often rated on their accuracy, meaning how closely was the player able to match the engine's recommended moves. And as you mentioned, Bill, over time, we expect the player to get better and better at matching the engine's moves. Um, you know, setting aside for a minute the question of how an engine arrives at moves versus humans, which is an interesting, uh, you know, question there. But the goal is to try to come close to the baseline as opposed to being something creative and apart from it. So uh, any thoughts on those three different kinds of ways that the design inference might yeah, be? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most straightforward is uh, detecting design against some sort of chance process, you know. So you might mm -hmm. uh, might have something that's purely random. I mean, you think of randomly tossing Scrabble pieces and then you arrange them uh, into meaningful text. I mean, they're, you know, the contrast, I think, couldn't be clearer. And the probabilities are, are fairly straightforward. You know, when it comes yeah. to agents uh, acting, so like a, a case of plagiarism, for instance, even when agents act intentionally, there can be chance distributions connected with their behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so for instance, if I'm typing away at, you know, second edition of design inference, uh, you know, I'm writing in English, you know, the words I use, I mean, it's going to be standard, standard usage. So... Uh, there are going to be certain statistical distributions associated with the letters. You know, E is going to be appearing a lot more than X. You know, E will probably appear about 12% of the time. You know, I don't know, T or S, I think is about 8 or 9% of the time. And then, you know, you go down. Q will always or almost always be in front of U, except for some Middle Eastern words. So, um, you know, so there are various distributions that are associated with it. Now, if that distribution is violated, that itself can call to mind a design inference. So uh, there was mm -hmm. a fellow named, I think, what was it, Edward Vincent Wright? I'm, I'm not sure I got the first name right, but he wrote a novel, I think it was in the 1920s, called Gadsby. And it's a novel of 50,000 words that not one of the words has the letter of E in it, you know? So hmm. and it, I've read a little bit of it. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds very <laughs> stilted, you know, but it's, uh, yeah. and, you know, and as, as it is, he wrote it on a typewriter where he battened down the letter E. But if you didn't know that, you know, what would you think? Was it just right. he happened to type this? You know, he's an intentional agent. You know, I'm an intentional agent. When I write, I get a letter distribution where E is 12%. You know, when he wrote it, it didn't appear once. So was that intentional or was it not? Well, obviously it was intentional. I mean, he admitted as much. But if you didn't know sure. that, you could still draw a design inference because, you know, the 
the, the distribution was just so far off of what was what was expected. You know, so that's yeah. Did did it were there were there spaces where there should have been ease, or was there just nothing? No, I mean it, it, it was the le- you know the word the never appeared. You know, it's uh, oh, it just didn't appear. I see. Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, he he yeah. wrote it where it's uh, you know it was it was constantly that would be pretty difficult. Oh yeah, you know, so it's it's Gadsby G A D S B Y is the you know I mean, if you can go okay. online you can. You can get some excerpts from it. It's probably available online as well. But, uh, you know, but that's that's more perhaps in even the, the plagiarism example, you know, because there would be probabilities in terms of even if you're trying to, if you're writing on the same topic, that you could sure. match exactly certain, you know, I mean, you know, the more that you're matching, the less probable, you know, a, a single sentence could be enough to get you nailed as a plagiarist, you know, but if it's an entire paragraph verbatim, you know, you, you could, there is a probability that you could have just uh, recreated what appeared before, but it's, you know, we would say it's too improbable. And the one instance of the text is a specification for the other. And so that's why, you know, you reject the, the second instance of it as, you know, mm-hmm. attributed to, to cheating, which is a design inference, rather than independent creation, you know, which would also, I mean, design would also be involved in independent creation, but it's, there, there's a chance process that's connected with it. So, you know, so chance applies to lots of activities uh, that are also intentional, even things like murder rates. I mean, they have a certain, there, there's a certain probability or accident rates, you know, on the highway. I mean, there's usually, I mean, there's intention that's involved, but you know, it's it's still uh, there. There, there, chance pro- distributions that we uh, assign, and if things that are too much out of whack, we draw design inferences. I mean, think of the movie Coma, for instance. You know, where you have all these people who die in the same operating theater, and uh, you know, it's just highly improbable that they would. Well, you know, why did they die? Because you know, there was nefarious intent, but there was a design inference there as well. You know, and then uh, I guess to your last point, though, about, you know, where you're aspiring to to match a certain high level of intelligence. You know, I think that that's what makes this this example in chess, I think, so interesting, you know, because there's uh, I mean, I think at some level, if I had to get into Magnus Carlsen's mind, you know, he has a sense that he has a certain strength. Uh, he has a certain chess intelligence and he doesn't see his opponent having that same level of chess intelligence. And it just doesn't make sense that he should lose to, to Niemann. You know, I think that's, that's what's going on. So I think there's a a kind of pre-theoretic design inference that he is drawing. Uh, I don't think he has enough data to do so reliably. Uh, There's probably some bias at work also. So, you know, and we, before mm-hmm. this conversation, you know, we said, you know, we're not, not accusing anybody of cheating, you know, and I think that that's right, <laughs> you know, but I think it, it, it's an interesting question. What is the logic by which a uh, cheating inference might be reliably drawn here? I don't think we're at, at the place where we can reliably draw it, but uh, there's still some interesting speculations that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. So just, just to, um, maybe wrap up a little bit kind of to bring that point home then as we, as we end here. So in this situation, as I was delving through this report that chess.com put out and looking at the lawsuit, which I read through from Neiman, 
you know, it's interesting because they're they're using statistical analysis as kind of an initial trigger, if you will, an initial suspicion, and then bringing in some additional data, conversations, analysis, some of it soft, some of it hard, uh, actually reaching out to the individual, all these kinds of things to try to get to an ultimate conclusion. But the initial suspicion, Bill, was raised by some relatively small changes in the statistical probabilities. Mm -hmm. So if I take, let's, let's bring this to the biology context. Let's say if I say that, you know, we do sort of the quintessential simple analysis of the odds of some, you know, couple of coordinated mutations or a protein coming together to build a biological machine, a few proteins. In theory, given how the design inference is used in so many other areas in the real world, we might be justified in getting suspicious if we saw just some reasonable deviation from the norm. And if the odds of this coming together by chance were a little bit worse than what would be expected by natural processes. But it seems to me that the situation in biology is really so much stronger than, than that. Yeah, I mean, the, any sorts of probability estimates that my colleagues and I have been putting on these systems, you know, we would say are trying to assess the probability of an enzyme and what, what are the probabilistic hurdles to that. It seems extreme, you know, and so, uh, so it's, it's not, these, these are not large probabilities where it's, you know, there's, there's the mere suspicion. You know, I think often design inferences start where, you know, you see a pattern, there is a suspicion, you know, and maybe the initial probabilities that you become aware of are not that small. But it's as you analyze further, that's that's when, you know, you want to see probabilities really go down if you're going to draw a design inference. I, you've read this this report. I mean, you know, I I just see the bullet points. You know, statistical significance of the results. Are they actually doing statistical analyses? I mean, do you are you are you seeing the yes. statistical? Yes, yes, they did. They did a number. Yeah, they did a number of different types of statistical analyses that that yeah. they outline outline in the report okay. based on his own play, based on comparisons with uh, peer groups and things like that. Yeah. Okay, I should I should look at that. That would interest me. You know, just. Uh, I'm doubtful that it's going to be a smoking gun or, you know, just, you know. No, no, it's not. And again, they're looking at some past play on their platform. They did do a little bit of analysis on his over the board game with Carlson and specifically said, we don't think there's enough here to raise a red flag regarding his over the board play. Yeah. So they, they were particularly looking at why they had banned him, which is their purview. They don't have any jurisdiction in the FIDE events. So they're just looking at why did we ban him from our event to yeah. close his account is what they're really responding to. But yeah. yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. Yeah, very interesting. It plays out, you know? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I do think sort of for me, the take home message is that a, the design inference is a real deal. Like you mentioned several cases, archeology, span SETI, uh, you know, patent litigation, those kinds of things where, Design inference is used all the time. And for some reason, it's only when it comes to biology that uh, people get upset and, and uh, say, no, 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 that's, that's off limits. Well, that's, that's been my finding. You know, no, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, as I said, they, they do provide a rationale. And it's, I think it ends up in the end being some mis mystery mongering with the selection mechanism because it becomes the designer substitute. You know? And it's... Right. Uh, I mean, it's interesting, just even the etymology of the word selection, the L-E-C in selection is the same 
as the L-O-G in Logos. I mean, it's, it's the, the Greek for gathering, for reason, for word. Uh, what about intelligence? The select yeah, between or the same, between? same root. The L-I-G in yeah. intelligence is the same thing. So, you know, so this, this was, I would say, Darwin's great coup, uh, you know, to, it's not just to propose this mechanism, but to give it that label so that it becomes this mm-hmm. designer substitute, you know, so it's, uh, you know, so rhetorically, I think it ended up being very shrewd because then you think you're dealing with something that can do what intelligence can do when it really can't. But that's, uh, that's how the game is played. And this is, I think this has been, uh, the great delusion of modern naturalistic evolutionary theory. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, Bill, thanks so much for being with us. It sounds like the design inference is alive and well. It's used in the real world and can have real world economic and legal implications. But, the, you know, the level of certainty, I would say at least, is is a much stronger in biology where the comparator is a blind, undirected natural process. And so we can have great confidence uh, in the design inference. And we appreciate your work in laying this out many years ago and continuing to work on it. Look forward to the upcoming book. Good. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been fun uh, talking with you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of ID the Future. To learn more about the design inference and the evidence for design in nature, join us again here at ID the Future or on our sister YouTube channel, Discovery Science. As you listen to these great resources, we invite you to consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.